Blog Talk Radio. This is our common ground, alternative activist empowerment talk radio, speaking truth to our and ourselves. Who are you? You don't know. Don't tell me Negro, that's nothing. What were you before the white man named you a Negro? And where were you? And what did you have? What was yours? What language did you speak then? I am a revolutionary. This is about what we didn't do. Amen. Then it speaks to us and the possibility for us as a future person. Because ultimately, our people's future resides on what we do outside of the White House. African descent fairly, America failed. She put them in chains. The government put them on slave quarters, put them on action block, auction blocks, put them in cotton fields, put them in inferior schools, put them in substandard housing, put them in scientific experience, experiments, put them in the lowest paying jobs, put them outside the equal protection of the law, kept them out of their racist bastions of higher education, and locked them into positions of hopelessness and helplessness. The government gives them the drugs, builds bigger prisons, passes a three-strike law, and then wants us to sing God Bless America? No, no, no. Not God Bless America. God... Our Common Ground with Janice Graham. Our Common Ground, speaking truth to power and ourselves. Our Common Ground, a higher ground for discourse, discussion, solutions, and ideas. I'm Janice Graham, and I'll be listening for you. Talk, talk, that matters. Transforming truth truth to power, one broadcast at a time. And now to Our Common Ground with Janice Graham. So let me tell you a story about a man. His name is Muhammad Ali. He is the greatest of all time. When I look into this crowd, I smile. I smile to recognize that he's not really gone. He lives in you. And he lives in me. And he lives in every person that he has touched in every corner of this world. He lives in each and every one of us. The first Saturday in May, we hope you will place a bet on one of the horses. But if you do, please know the rules. What will happen is the horses will start off in the starting gate. And then the signal will be given. They will run in the mud for two minutes. And the winner will then be led to the winner's circle where a wreath of roses will be placed around the horse's neck. We want you to make a bet, but please know the rules. You cannot bet for the horse once it's in the winner's circle. 
you have to bet for the horse while it's still in the mud. And there are a lot of people, there are a lot of people who will bet and have bet on Muhammad Ali when he was in the winner's circle. But the masses bet on him while he was still in the mud. Kareem Abdul-Jabbar stood with him when he was in the mud. Jim Brown stood with him when he was in the mud. Bill Russell stood with him when he was in the mud. Howard Cosell stood with him when he was in the mud. So I want to say, how do we honor Muhammad Ali? And the answer is the way to honor Muhammad Ali is to be Muhammad Ali today. And that means us, everyone here and everyone listening. It's up to us to continue that ability to speak truth to power. We must speak out, refuse to follow the path of conformity to the rules of the game in life. We must refuse to follow the path of conformity. Tell the 1% who own 80% of the wealth of this country that it's time to share that wealth. Tell the politicians who use violence worldwide and then preach nonviolence to the oppressed that it's time for them to end their drone warfare and every other form of warfare, to close our bases around the world, to bring the troops home, Tell those who created mass incarceration that it's time to create a guaranteed income for everyone in our society. Tell judges to let out of prison the many African Americans swept up by, the, by racist police and imprisoned by racist judges. And many of them in prison today for offenses like possessing marijuana that white people get away with all the time. Tell our elected officials to imprison those who authorized torture and those who ran the big banks and investment companies that caused the economic collapse of 2008. Tell the leaders of Turkey to stop killing the, killing the Kurds. Tell Israeli Prime Minister Netanyahu that the way to get security is for Israel is to stop the occupation of the West Bank and help create a Palestinian state. Tell the next president of the United States that she Tell the next president of the United States that she should seek a constitutional amendment to make all national and state elections funded by Congress and the state legislatures and all other sources of money be banned, including money from corporations, from individuals, all other money, make it all public funding. Wish to pay honor to, to Muslims of the world as they continue today the fast of Ramadan and join with them in mourning the loss and celebrating the life of Muhammad Ali, a great fighter for justice and peace. Peace be upon him, peace be upon the Prophet Muhammad, 
Peace be upon all of humanity and peace on all of us. Listening to Our Common Ground with Janice Graham. And now, Janice Graham. Good evening, everyone, and thank you. And this week, on yesterday, we join the world in saying farewell to Muhammad Ali. What Muhammad Ali did in this culture that worships sports and violence, as well as a culture that idolizes black athletes while criminalizing black skin. He redefined what it means to be tough and collective, the very idea of courage. Through his words on the street and deeds in the ring, bravery was not only standing up to um, the sunny Liston, it was speaking truth to power no matter the cost. I was not with you last Saturday night uh, to lament our losses as we now accept him as a champion ancestor. But he was a hero of my childhood. He was of my time. And tonight at Our Common Ground, we're going to be talking about what uh, uh, Muhammad Ali meant to black children of my generation. Thank you for being with us. We're so glad to have you tonight at our common ground, the undoing. We're going to talk gorillas, rapists, Muhammad Ali, Donald Trump, Hillary Clinton, and uh, the new version of the series Roots. And we hope that you will join us. Our guest tonight, Dr. James L. Taylor of the University of San Francisco and UC Berkeley Black Studies Department, 
both a chair and professor and author of Black Nationalism in the United States from Malcolm X to Barack Obama. He is an Our Common Ground voice, and we are so honored to be able to have him. In our second hour, we hope you'll stick around, Zakia Sankara Jabbar. She's a co-founder and executive director of Racial Justice Now in Dayton, Ohio, leading and narrating a new approach to how we both protest educational institutions which are public for our children. You should keep that name in mind. Say it with me, Zakia Sankara Jabbar. In 10 years, I will guarantee you that she will be the most prominent transformative voice in both education, injustice, and social justice in this country. She has proven that she knows how to organize, how to educate, how to interact and engage on our behalf. And we are so very pleased that she's going to be joining us tonight. We talked tonight with Dr. James L. Taylor, and we uh, certainly thank you. I, I don't know what's going on with the chat room. I think I got the right chat room, but, you know, you all don't come in time. Oh, yeah, India's in there, so I guess it's the right chat room. But if you would like to join our chatters, you can come to blogtalkradio.com backslash OCG and come right on in. I was away last weekend, uh, and I thank Alpha of the Alpha Show of Truth Networks Network uh, for sitting in and taking the mic, and what a magnificent job he did. One of the things that I love over the years in my association with Alpha as a broadcaster he doesn't try to put a shirt and tie on it. He doesn't try to spray a little perfume or a little fragrance or put some lipstick on it. He allows you to see the pig without the lipstick. He gives us a perspective from the ground floor, from the grassroots, from the people who have a mighty stake, but no power. And he does it in a way that it comes from that old black tradition, a common sense. If you see it and it's quacking, don't try to guess whether it's a duck. Just face it, it's a duck. So thank you very much, and we're going to get started. I'm going to try to figure out which one of these people on this board, in these numbers, is Dr. James L. Taylor. But let me give you, for those of you who do not know, uh, some information you need to know who are powerful scholars and public intellectuals are, where they came from and what they're doing. Dr. James Lance Taylor is author of the book Nationalism in the United States from Malcolm X to Barack Obama, which earned a 2011 Outstanding Academic Title Choice Current Reviews for Academic Libraries. He is the immediate past president 
of the National Conference of Black Political Scientists, an important organization for African-American, African, and Afro-Caribbean political scientists in the United States. He's Associate Professor and Chair of the Department of Politics at the University of San Francisco. His undergraduate degree is from Pepperdine University, and his graduate degrees were earned at the University of Southern California. He has taught previously as a visiting associate professor of political science at St. Louis University in Madrid, Spain, and political science. African American Studies at University of California, Berkeley. He is co-editor and author with Kathleen Tate of University of California, Irvine, if she's still there, and Mark Sawyer, UCLA. Something in the Air, Race and the Legalization of Marijuana. Oh, I'm going to put that on the agenda because there's some other things on the agenda that we're going to talk with Dr. Taylor about, and we are so very pleased to have him be available to you and to me. His uh, current research is for a book, People's Temple, Jim Jones and Black America, which is a study of the People's Temple movement. You know, the people who went to Guyana and they all drank the Kool-Aid and Black America, and I don't mean to be quirk about it, which is a study of the People's Temple movement and African-American political history. Two of his articles on the subject have appeared in um, recent editions of the Jonestown Report newsletter at San Diego State University. Uh, He is currently writing, I'm not sure, and I will ask him uh, if he has completed writing a journal article, A Black Theology of the Souls of W.E.B. Du Bois' Black Folk in recognition of that book's 110th anniversary, which was uh, three years ago. So we hope that you will join us in this discussion, and we are just so very pleased to have Dr. Lance, James Lance Taylor, join us again, and I hope this is his line. Dr. Taylor, is this you? No. <laughs> Dr. Taylor, Hello. is this you? I'm right here. How Hello. are you, my brother? So good to I'm have great. you Thank with us again. Thank you for having me. I appreciate your introduction as well. I um I have um I have to to guess by area code who's who on this board. Right. So thank you so very much for 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 joining us. I was very excited to be able to have you come and talk to us because Dr. Taylor, quite frankly, I'm depleted in the thinking department about the 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 political environment, the political instruments, the political mechanisms under which we find ourselves as a people in 2016 in this 2016 presidential election, uh, our relationship with the Congress, uh, the sitting Congress, our relationship to the key movements that have occurred. So I wanted to talk to you about this, and, and, and maybe you can help us unwrap. I think one of the things that black people never stop to do is to unravel the confusion. We just keep plowing through and picking up 
more confusion. So why don't we stop? start with this? I know you and sure. I, uh, before we get into that whole political thing, because that, that never stops, I did want to talk to you, brother, about uh, our experiences as children growing up and watch, watching Cassius Clay become Muhammad Ali, become a global icon, and especially your observations about how the world has responded in, 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 in two things, in three things, actually. His illness, um, his uh, positioning as uh, um, a medal, a freedom of medal um, re- receiver, recipient, and uh, his death. I was a huge Ali fan, when uh, Cassius Clay fan, when I was a little girl. I wanted mm-hmm. to marry him. <laughs> yeah, no, Muhammad Ali, uh, you know, I, I, I don't even know where to begin because, I mean, two generations of, of people, especially African-American people, have their own um, experience or, or sensibilities about what Ali represents. It, it, it's sad that we have to lose someone like Muhammad Ali or someone like uh, Michael Jackson to really appreciate the brilliance and genius of who they were. We knew it, and when we saw it, and we as black people were the source of, of their greatness in terms of, you know, supporting them when before anybody else did and when no one else would. Um, and when the law and the state came down on them, they were able to rely on their roots, you know, their, their community foundations. Um, but Muhammad Ali... Um, I, I honestly, I can tell you this. I'm in my son's room uh, talking to you. Um, my two boys, one son is 10. My youngest son is eight years old. Um, in my, on my refrigerator, uh, there's a, a, a magnet picture of Muhammad Ali that's been on there for about five years um, where we hold all of our kids' um, homework and uh, report cards and next to their own pictures for themselves is a picture of a magnet of Michelle Obama and a magnet of Muhammad Ali next to each other. Really beautiful. And then here I'm in their bedroom right now. And there's a picture of Muhammad Ali on the wall. And it says, I'll tell you, I'd like to be how I'd like to be remembered as a black man who won the heavyweight title, who was humorous and who never looked down on those who looked up to him a man who stood for freedom, justice, and equality. And I wouldn't even mind if folks forgot how pretty I was. <laughs> and, and, and then the other, and the other so there, there are two large posters of life-size posters in my son's bedrooms, and they both are Muhammad Ali. And I'm looking at a punching bag in my, son, my 10-year-old son's bedroom where he is punching. He's interested in boxing. I won't let him, but he's interested in boxing because of Muhammad Ali. He's 10 years old. He sits around watching YouTubes of Muhammad Ali. And, and the reason why I, I had Ali um, exposed, my son's exposed to Ali, um, is because I grew up without a father. Um, and I was, born in the, in the, in the mid, I was born the year Muhammad Ali became heavyweight champion in, in, mid, in the mid-60s. And so, okay. uh, so Muhammad Ali, for me, um, and I, again, I was five years old. I had no father. So Muhammad Ali actually was like a father to me spiritually 
And he actually came to my hometown because we had a, 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 an Olympic champion named Howard Davis Jr., uh, who just died himself a few uh, weeks ago. Um, Howard Davis Jr. went to the Olympics in 1976, along with Leon Spinks, Michael Spinks, a guy named Leo Randolph, and Sugar Ray Leonard was the most famous of that group. But Howard Davis Jr., uh, whose mom died during the Olympics in 1976, he became a national uh, – Figure in 1976 because he won the Olympics when his mom died. Cosell came to our little projects in Long Island and Glen Cove, Long Island, New York. Howard Cosell, Muhammad Ali, the whole world for one moment came to our little town. And Ali came to our town. And he came and he always focused on the young black boys and girls around him. He, he, he made sure they felt special. Um, and when you see Ali, he treated everyone that way all over the world. Ali was just an amazing human being, and his spirit um, is one of those spirits of, of human beings that you need to, I think, register well with anybody that you valorize on a very high and esteemed level. Muhammad Ali belongs right there, and for me, he's always been there. And so as the world has mourned, to be honest with you, I, I, won't, I didn't watch most of what ESPN or anybody presented on television because I didn't want to. I didn't want to have Bill Clinton be a part of me mourning Muhammad Ali. I didn't want Billy Joel, uh, I mean, uh, Bill, uh, Billy Crystal and whatever he has to offer, um, you know, and, and after I heard what he actually said, because I did hear a snippet, I, I, you know, I'm, 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 I was right in my original decision that I didn't want to hear what he had to say. Um, and, and some of the, you know, tributes, especially the ones you played, were amazing. Um, uh, Rabbi Michael Lerner and his powerful, yes. uh, I, I saw, I heard his. That was beautiful. But there was nothing that Bill Clinton had to say that I was interested in, nothing that Billy Crystal uh, had to say. Um, you know, and I just hate this idea that, you know, the establishment, um, you know, like they excluded Louis Farrakhan. How can you possibly mm -hmm. exclude Louis Farrakhan? from the funeral of Muhammad Ali. Mm -hmm. It's impossible. That it's Not only did they funeral. exclude the, the uh, uh, brother minister uh, Farrakhan, they excluded the nation of Islam. Right. And had the police everywhere surrounding him and the community up in Louisville. And I'm just looking like, why do they have all these police, especially these white cops, surrounding Muhammad Ali? when this is the same system that tried to destroy him and took away three years of his prime. So mm -hmm, I'm sorry mm -hmm. if, I, if, I, if I'm, you know, sound negative. I honestly um, have loved Muhammad Ali all my life. I will love him until I die. I'm so thankful to God that Muhammad I hear you. I hear you. I hear you. I he was so deep thankful. in our lives. He was I'm so deep thankful in that our I was lives. Alive. I'm so thankful that I was alive um, to see him actually fight toward the very end of his career. You know, I saw some of his best fights as a, as a young kid. I watched his best fight, and it made me want to be a man. And I actually became a boxer because of him and John John Howard Davis Jr., the young man I explained, who went to the mm -hmm. Olympics in my hometown and won the gold medal. So, again, I come from a hometown of projects that brought, uh, produced a gold medal. So all of the young boys in my community wanted to be boxers. So I actually was inspired by Muhammad Ali and John John, as we called him, and went to the mm – -hmm. I fought in the New York State Golden Gloves in New York in 1991. I fought in the New York Golden Gloves trying to be like Ali. So this man was um, more than a, 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 a boxer. He was – 
He was my black manhood. And I don't mean that in any mm-hmm. chauvinistic way. I don't mm-hmm. mean that in any mm-hmm. way to disrespect sisters or black women or in any way. Um, I'm mm-hmm. saying in terms of me as a black boy, needing to understand my own possibilities and positive role mm-hmm. models to point to when young white boys would tease and talk, you know, say negative things, you know, as kids do back and forth to each other. We always could say Muhammad Ali. And there was yes. nothing they could yes. say back. Yes, yes. I mean... Because these same little kids that would be a racist, their own kids, their own mamas and fathers probably respected Muhammad Ali, too. Uh, you know, the the, the 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 depth of our generation's relationship with this man is so multidimensional. Um, my parents, my mother was always trying to figure out another narrative for Cassius Clay because she thought that he was important and what he had to say was important. And he and she was always saying, I wish, well, my mother was a, was a teacher, so he, she kept saying, I wish he would just calm down and say what he has to say. <laughs> and my father was saying, my father was saying, that boy knows how to lay it out, and that's the only way in which they will listen. Yeah. Um, he... He came to our home uh, on two occasions when I was very small. Wow, wow. Um, Because, you know, it was Jim Crow in the South. So when he came to West Palm Beach, Florida, there was no hotel, no matter what kind of, what he could afford. And at that time, he really couldn't afford the breakers. Um, So, uh, and, and then my senior year in high school, he accompanied my family and some friends, family friends, to the Orange Blossom Classic. Um, mm-hmm. And we were also family friends with Joe Lewis and Marva Lewis. So wow. It, 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 you know, it, it, and and there was a boxing club. There was a boxing training for black boys in my community, but black girls couldn't go there, but uh, couldn't take the classes, but we went and watched. So it all came together, but I was a huge anti-war protester. And one of the things when my father had to come to Boston and get me out of jail, uh, one of the things that he wrote to me, that he sent me, was a copy of Muhammad Ali's statement when he refused to be inducted. Right. And in that statement, I still have it in a a framed, and in that statement um, he said, if I thought the war was going to bring freedom, because I'm reading off my wall right now, bring freedom and equality to 22 million of my people, they wouldn't have to draft me. I'd join tomorrow. I have right. nothing to lose by standing right. up for my beliefs, so I'll go to jail. So what? We've right. been in jail for 400 years. That's right. I have made copies of that. My grandson, who is 14, That's he right. has had that same poster in his room since he was about four. Yep. And today he was a valedictorian of his graduating That's right. class. That's right. And That's he right. quoted Muhammad Ali. That's right. That's right. 
so that's this right. goes it goes so deep into your soul. I think it was yes. the first time that I have ever really shed tears. Uh deep tears. Yeah. Uh salty tears. Yeah. For uh, a celebrity. Yeah. This man no, and you know and 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 yeah. and, the, and the and 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 the college students and the student activists of this time in this time contemporary ones really need to understand what he did. He shifted yeah. the world. Yes. He he didn't he didn't he didn't just change it. He shifted everything. I'm sitting there as an eight-year-old watching a black man right. on TV tell white people yes. yes, yes, the things that my parents were saying at my dining room table. Yeah, you know, and, and, and Ali was just amazing um, as as a political activist. Um, I think people don't realize, like, for example, I live out here in the Bay Area and work in San Francisco. I'm from New York originally, but I live out here now. And what people don't know, for example, or very few people know, is that Muhammad Ali, after Martin, like two weeks after Martin Luther King was murdered, um, let, me, let me rewind just a second, because this is connected to something I said earlier, and that's, that's Eden. Um, one of the speakers there talked about Howard Cosell stood with Ali and named uh, Jim Brown and, and uh, mentioned uh, Bill Russell, who, you know, that's the school I teach at, is Bill Russell's university out here in yep. San Francisco. Mm-hmm. That's, that's mm-hmm. what the school is most known for, yep. is Bill Russell and Casey Jones, et cetera. Um, they didn't mention... <laughs> Martin Luther King, and I, and I really want to, to, to your audience to understand. They did. He did. That, that he Muhammad, did mention that, it. That Martin Luther King, okay, good, because I thought I, I thought I didn't hear it. But yeah, Martin Luther he King, did. What King happened was the recording somehow okay. skipped that okay. part. Okay. Well, that's, okay, well, good. Yeah. Because I just want yeah. to reiterate, Martin Luther King, uh, you know, against his, you know, he, he stood, you know, controversially uh, against um, Malcolm X, on religious grounds as well as, you know, ideological grounds earlier. And later he came around and he became, you know, associates with, with the Honorable Elijah Muhammad and met with the Honorable Elijah Muhammad. And many members of the Nation of Islam believe that Martin Luther King was increasingly radicalized by his interactions with the Honorable Elijah Muhammad. Um, but Martin Luther King took a radical position related to, Martin, uh, to, to uh, Muhammad Ali. He stood with Muhammad Ali, even as Martin Luther King went around the country urging young white men to take a position of conscientious objection against the war in Vietnam. After his famous April 4th, uh, 1967 uh, Vietnam, uh, Beyond, yes. uh, Viet- called Beyond Vietnam, or also called A Time to Break Silence, that he gave to the day one year before his death, April 4th, 1967. He's murdered April 4th, 1968. Um, Martin Luther King stood repeatedly with Muhammad Ali. He preached from his own pulpit endorsing Muhammad Ali. He was in public. In fact, I'm reading a book right now on, on the administration of Richard Nixon called Nixon's Piano, and they're talking about Lyndon Johnson in the context of that, and they're explaining how Martin Luther King supporting Muhammad Ali was one of the things, one of the major factors that brought down his administration, that brought down yes. his administration. So, so Martin well, you Luther know- King... 
was a powerful supporter of Muhammad Ali against their religious differences and even their ideological differences. King met Muhammad Ali in spite of their differences as integrationists and nationalists, as Muslims and Christians. They, they supported each other because, again, the last part I want to mention real quickly is that Muhammad Ali, two weeks after OPD here in Oakland, killed little Bobby Hutton and the Black Panther Party, which was April 6, 1968, two days, after, two days before that, Martin Luther King had been killed in Memphis. Um, yes. You know, that, that, that whole time period, um, you know, uh, Muhammad Ali came to San Francisco and led a march of black people through the Fillmore District. He led about 20,000 people um, downtown um, with uh, the actress Vanessa, uh, Vanessa Redgrave and Bobby Seale. Muhammad Ali led a march um, through downtown San Francisco, um, making demands, supporting the Black Panther Party, and basically, you know, shocked the world once again. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the things and why people, you as a professor, as a teacher, as a historian, why you, as an intellectual, why you are so important to our people, Dr. Taylor, is yes, because ma'am. you have studied and you understand the nexus of all right. of those events to mm-hmm. where we are today. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I just believe that our people have to understand, and this is why I do this. Every Saturday night, I will do this until I can't do it anymore. Right. right. Um, it, it is because our people have to understand that it is people like you who have clarified and made straight our history. Right, right. Because the media did not cover that Fillmore Section yeah. March yeah. led right. by Muhammad yeah. Ali. That's right. And the, and, the media and, tried to cover yeah. up the relationship between Elijah Muhammad and Dr. Martin Luther King. Yes. yes. And they did Absolutely. one more thing, and I want to get your impression. This has always been my impression since my days, my protest college days, is that. They overinflated Muhammad Ali's negative behavior toward Malcolm when Malcolm was shunned. Yeah. Yes. No, I, no, I agree. Um, I had the good experience in 1992 uh, when I was at Pepperdine um, as an assistant professor there. Um, when Spike Lee's movie on Malcolm X came out, uh, the university hired me to interview Malcolm X's daughter, who spoke at Muhammad Ali's uh, funeral, yes. Asa Lechabah. So, so in 1982, and, and I didn't I play parts of her. She was very powerful. I didn't play parts of yes. her in my clip because the, the, the audio was all screwed up. Yes. Yeah. No, and she, she clarified then, you know, we talked about Muhammad Ali and his relationship to her father, and she, you know, she said that they had, you know, Martin, Muhammad Ali explained and expressed that it was his greatest regret was that he turned his back at one point on uh, Malcolm directly um, in, his, in his, you know, in his obedience to the nation and probably in fear because the nation was not playing 
with defectors at that moment. You know, it was serious. Yes, yes. Um, yeah, it was very he, serious. He, he would, yeah, and he would have, you know, he would have been, you know, subject to, to whatever retributions any other defectors were um, subject to, especially because it would be such a high-profile and important defection. So Ali, um, you know, was different. Uh, but uh, I'll let Shabazz clarify that there's a, there was an ongoing relationship with her uh, and Muhammad Ali and her sisters and Dr. Betty Shabazz. And I also, before I moved out here to California, as I was in New York, in, in the streets of Harlem, I had the good experience, I think it was 1993, in Harlem, when Arthur Ashe, Dr. Betty Shabazz, and Muhammad Ali led a bunch of us ordinary folk through the streets of Harlem, marching up and down Lenox Boulevard and 125th uh, Street uh, to the Adam Clayton Power Boulevard uh, Avenue uh, building, where Dr. Barry Shabazz gave a speech um, and made demands that people bring back her husband. This is 1983, before Malcolm died. Yes, I remember this. Mm -hmm. Yes, and she said, until you all bring back my husband, I will not forgive you. She said, you must bring back my husband, Dr. Betty Shabazz did. And within a decade, you know, it went beyond the streets of Harlem and, of course, the the reach and impact of Malcolm X, his reputation, his thinking, um, his life, you know, spread through the hip-hop generation and, you know, has still, um, it still resonates powerfully with many young people today. And I think now Muhammad Ali is going to be elevated um, at a level higher than he even was in life um, because those of us who are alive, like you and me, we were already, we were already conveying who he was to our children. And that's the African yes. thing in us. We were already yes, telling our is. children, look at this black warrior champion hero. Farrakhan says something beautiful from the, um, from the Mother Maryam Mosque uh, recently. Uh, and it was when Muhammad Ali was still alive. I think it was 2005. <clears throat> and he said with Ali in the audience that uh, Muhammad Ali was the most well-known human being of the past 6,000 years. That's what, that's what, that's what yes. Farrakhan said. And, 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 and it's if true. Off, if he's off, he's not off by far. You know, you can, you can worship Jesus and love Jesus and, and, and serve Jesus. You can love Muhammad and worship Muhammad. I mean, uh, respect Muhammad and peace be upon Muhammad. Um, you can worship the other traditions and the other figures. You can recognize Mother Teresa and Nelson Mandela. Um, but Muhammad Ali had a massive following of millions of people 50, 40 years ago. Yes. And they've always been admirers of his. For, for decades, he's had millions of followers. And there are very few men, very few human beings who can say that. And he hasn't really said anything clearly to them and in the past 30 to 40 years, given the impact of Parkinson's um, eventually on, on, his, on his nervous system and on his body. Yeah, yeah. You know, one of the things that I thought about, and I watched all day yesterday the procession in 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 Louisville. I had seen Muhammad Ali in Louisville. Um, we had another family friend that lived there that was very close to him, uh, and and I watched the people in the street. And I love the fact that Reverend Crosby, who was uh, the pastor of a, the Baptist church that um, the Clay family attended, uh, I love the idea that he talked about uh, that 
Louisville loved him because he loved Louisville. And yeah. he wasn't talking he was talking about poor people and grassroots people and people on the street corner. He wasn't talking about the politicians and the funeral home directors and all of those people. And I love the idea that he he made that so very clear. But as I watched the procession, I closed my eyes at one point. And I thought to myself, why didn't they organize a group of black boys, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, running behind this procession in white T-shirts saying, Ali, Ali, Ali. Because in my mind, that was the spirit that he brought to the world, that even children understood the import of what he did and his and 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 and, and, and the spirit that he brought to black people. Uh, thank you so much for sharing uh for sharing that with us because I think it's so important. And uh today when my grandson at 14 living in New England all of his life um ended his valedictorian speech with a quote, and he said, from my favorite hero and a man that really understood the magic of winning. He said those things, the magic of winning. I leave this school with this quote for my friends and classmates. And he quoted Muhammad Ali, and I just—I almost lost it at that point. And that's the tragedy. That's the tragedy of, I'd say, the past forty years in terms at a community level, is we have failed as community uh, at a community level to convey our heroes, um, and they've also torn down, you know, a, a good balance of our heroes and heroes. Um, or heroines, whichever language you prefer, but but they certainly, you know, uh, you know, we have to, you know, we have to point to people like Harry Belafonte, you know, who are still mm-hmm. amongst us. I mean, Ali, you have to think about this. Ali is from the movement era. He's like one of the few last big figures yes. from that time. You know, we still got people like uh, Sidney Poitier and Harry Belafonte, and Belafonte's still out there as revolutionary as as he's. In fact, he's like Du Bois. The older he's got gotten, the more radical Harry Belafonte has become. Most people become more uh, conservative as we age. Du Bois and Belafonte became more radical as they age. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. I really wanted to get one other point in real quickly because I didn't want to get too far off from the When you talked about the spirit of Ali, I want to also share with your audience that Ali was self-consciously invoking the spirit of Jack Johnson. Whenever he was acting yes. up, Whenever he was outrageous, whenever he was, I'm the greatest of all time, when he was acting up, jumping around in the ring, he would come in and say, Jack Johnson's in here tonight. Jack Johnson's in here tonight because <laughs> Jack Johnson was right. that first black man. And that's what people yes. need to understand. Ali was invoking Jack Johnson when he was acting a fool. He yes. understood, yes. and I'm saying when he was fooling in the most positive way. Ali self-consciously mentioned Jack Johnson after the legend and the greatness of, of the great Joe Lewis, the Brown Bomber, but who was definitely a more moderate, you know, social and yes. political figure. They used Joe um, Lewis to try to quiet yeah, yeah. The, the activism of Jack Johnson 
and of yeah. uh, Ali. That's right. They used That's him. That's right. That's right. That's right. And, and and he regretted that in the end. And I think Jackie Robinson also regretted, you know, uh, letting himself yes. uh, be used, you know, to support Nixon and to criticize the Black Power Movement and, you know, um, and, you know, openly supporting Nixon the way he did. Um, but, but Jack Johnson, you know, the American government created a federal law aimed directly at him called the, uh, the White Slavery Act. Uh, also known as the Mann Act, the M-A-N-N Act. It's also known as the, uh, the White Slavery Law, where Jack Johnson and later uh, the, the great um, uh, Marcus Garvey uh, were both uh, the federal government under J. Edgar Hoover, way before the time of Martin Luther King and Black Power, young J. Edgar Hoover tried to prosecute uh, Jack Johnson. And they even, the, the Congress created a law. For one black man. Think about that. The United States mm-hmm. government created one law to destroy the most prominent black man in America in the 19-teens, Jack Johnson. When he mm-hmm. won the championship, when he won the championship, the editorials at the L.A. Times, not, not down south, you know they were vicious, but the L.A. Times told black Americans, it means nothing to you. They, the, 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 the championship of Jack Johnson should mean nothing to you. Your, cha- your station has not changed. So when Muhammad Ali was invoking Jack Johnson, he understood the political implications of bringing that black, the ghost of Jack Johnson into the ring, mentioning his name. In light of the history and the recent greatness of Joe Lewis and the way the, the establishment tries to, um, you know, de-radicalize or tries to adopt. Yes, mm-hmm. and water down. That's how Jesus became white. You know, they, they eventually, I always joke around and say in 100 years, they're going to say that Martin Luther King was a great white man who was committed to black people's causes. You know, <laughs> we, we have precedent for this foolishness, and this is why we have to tell our sons and our daughters and hang pictures up in Muhammad Ali until the last hanger is available to be hung, the last picture is available to be hung. Absolutely. And I'm um, so glad we have YouTube and social media for young people to now listen to his words. You, see, they can't take that away from us. He's on YouTube. He's on social media saying bluntly, you know, ain't no Viet Cong ever called me the N-word, so-called, and, you know, documenting his, his black consciousness and his, and his articulating black common sense. Yes. And that's yes. the beauty of Ali. Yeah, yeah. It, we, we have have uh, definitely, and I want people in the audience to understand, we have to promulgate the study, the understanding of these people who we are lifting up. Uh, We have to understand what Prince did with his music, what he meant uh, in his music. We have to understand what Akashus Clay did to become yeah. a Muhammad Ali. Yeah. Um and I, I just I just hope that people will just go out and begin to encourage young people to not only understand that he was a boxer, but that he was a courageous man in the face of challenges to his people and he yeah. heralded social and economic justice in this country in a way that it had never happened before. Dr. Taylor, we're going we're coming up to the um to uh 
top of the hour. And one of the things, I had a lot of stuff to cover with you, but I, I think that this was just really important. I'm taking the rapist man off the, off the uh, agenda, folks, for 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 right now. But I do want to get your take on what seems to have become by the media and by entertainment, some obsession with O.J. Simpson. What, what, what is that all about? Yeah, yeah. No, it's, it's, it's so deep to me because I was in Los Angeles going to USC in the 1990s. Um, and I was there in fact watching. You're breaking up a little bit. Are you on the cell phone? Uh, yes, yes. Can you hear me? Okay. Yeah, I can hear yeah. you now. Uh-huh. I was um, I was actually in 1994 in Los Angeles in my apartment watching the Knicks game against Houston game. I think it was five or six of the NBA uh, championship that, you know, uh, happened at that moment. And I looked out my apartment and there was OJ on the freeway without Cowlings. And I saw all of the helicopters and all of the police right out my window. And it was the most surreal moment. Um, and my, when I saw it this morning, you know, ESPN is about to run this, a five-part series, and then of course Cuba Gooden Jr. just did something. I won't even look at this stuff. I won't even look at it, um, even though the documentation, I think, on ESPN with OJ is some really good quality uh, documentary investigative kind of reportage, um, and it, will, it might be worth a, a review. But to answer your question, I, I, I think I think you know, I think we're naive to believe there's not intentional racial propaganda being promoted on a daily basis with the intention of having a psychological impact on black people at all times. Because we're not at war with the system. We tend to think that it's not at war with us, and yet you can see um, how Hollywood deliberately has gotten more white recently, and it's doubled down on its whiteness. Um, and, you know, we've had, I think, two or three consecutive, uh, quote-unquote, the, uh, the most white Oscars um, ever, you know, in a row. And um, that is just the tip of the iceberg as, you know, as it relates to, you know, relates to the, the, whole, the whole question mm-hmm. um, in terms of so – Go ahead. In your, in your opinion, it, it's just a, a, a resurgence and continuing persistent racial propaganda. Yes. Yes, and, and um, I, think that's, I think that's unfortunate that we uh, tend not to understand, um, you know, the idea that they would bring O.J. back, um, you know, 25 years later. I mean, okay, this is the first week of June. Um, this is 20 uh, – this is – it happened the first week of June, 1994. So here we are. This is what um, – the 20 – what, second anniversary uh, or the yes. 27th anniversary of it, whatever it is, it's an odd year anniversary, and yet, you know, we, we're here, you know, focusing on it uh, once again. It just doesn't make any, you know, really good sense um, as to why um, it was that's on the top of, of your um, voice is of, going out again. No, I'm saying it, it's not. There's no good reason why um, we we should see multiple productions about OJ. There's no anniversary. Um, of, yeah, of the yeah. murder, or there's no rhyme or reason, in other words, uh-huh, um, uh-huh. to it. And uh, it, I, I see it as part of the larger attempt to affect, you know, African American people and to remind whites at this very um, tumultuous time of Black Lives Matter and the Black uh, freedom struggle uh, that that's going on in an ongoing basis. That you know, um, 
you know, the, the whole Donald Trump phenomenon, I, I, I think people need to understand that Donald Trump is, is not alone and that what our ancestors have done is given us this man um, who yes. they can't even hide, that he represents everything that they have articulated for 50 years, mostly the conservatives, but also the moderates and the liberals in their private circles of racial prejudice uh, and deep anti-black feeling. What part of, of, of Donald Trump's expressions are not traceable um, to some policy or, or statement or specific politician that the conservative movement and, and some of the Democrats too, hasn't produced over the past 30 to 40 years. So to bring mm-hmm. O.J. Simpson back, to me, is all a part of the psychological warfare on black America. I, I am confident that if they reported this Nielsen rating breakdown as to who's watching this nonsense, I assure you it's old white people who need to reassure themselves about mm-hmm. their racism. Yeah, that yeah, the black yeah. population and the, the black uh, viewership, I imagine is deeply disinterested in this conversation some 20, uh, you know, uh, many years after um, O.J. Simpson uh, and the trials uh, and the L.A. uprising in 1992. Um, it just has no relevance to where we are except to fit in to that, to that, niche, that niche of racial propaganda. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You're listening to Our Common Ground. I'm in discussion, and I'm Janice Graham, with Dr. James Taylor, uh, the author of Black Nationalism in the United States, from Malcolm X to Barack Obama. And if you have not read it, you should read it. It's Black Nationalism in the United States, from Malcolm X to Barack Obama. Uh, uh, coming up in our second hour, um, our sister Zakia Sankara Jabbar. She's a co-founder and executive director of Racial Justice Now in Dayton, Ohio. We're going to be deconstructing and discussing with Dr. Taylor this whole notion of the protest, the the racist protest against Harambe, the gorilla at the Cleveland Zoo, who was killed in order to save the life of a black child. This is Our Common Ground. Don't forget to like us or on Twitter at Janice OCG and subscribe to our Facebook. We're going to take a break. When we come back, we're going to be talking about Hillary Clinton, uh, a little bit more in depth about uh, the, the sociopath Donald Trump, and we're going to be talking about a seeming uh, kind of loyalty to Hillary Clinton and her husband or something is going on. I'm not understanding it, and we hope you will stay with us. And I know Zakia is uh, holding on. We're gonna we're about 15 minutes um, running behind here because we had a robust and very stimulating, uh, in-depth, soul-searching about our connection and the and the the legacy of Muhammad Ali, who was laid to rest on yesterday. I do want to tell you that uh, today is the, uh, we are in the Muslim holy month of Ramadan. 
It started this week, and most of the world's 1.6 billion Muslims will be observing it. It means there's a good chance that you might encounter someone, a friend, a co-worker, a barista, making your latte at Starbucks, your child's teacher who is celebrating Ramadan. And um, you really, we really need to uh, have our alliance with uh, our Muslims brothers and sisters intact and, 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 and to have it well informed. Ramadan, for those of you who do not know, is the most sacred month of the year for Muslims. The Prophet Muhammad reportedly said when the month of Ramadan starts, the gates of heaven are opened and the gates of hell are closed and the devils are chained. And Muslims believe it was during this month that God revealed the first verses of the Quran, Islam's sacred text, to Muhammad on a night known as the Night of Power, or Layla al-Qadr in Arabic. I'm not very good in Arabic. But during the entire month of Ramadan, Muslims fast every day from sunrise to sunset. It is meant to be a time of spiritual discipline of deep contemplation of one's relationship with God, extra prayer, increased charity and generosity, and intense study of the Quran happens at this time. You should know that uh, and to be respectful of how very much <coughs> Ramadan is the spiritual bulwark of our brothers and sisters who are Muslims. This is our common ground, and we'll be right back. As they force another death fight. As they the best of political talkback, common sense, right from the concrete. Urban, progressive, politics, politics, politics. Friday nights at TruthWorks Network, 10 p.m. Alpha drills down deep the lies, the conspiracies in politics. It's just Damn politics. The Alpha Show. If you're willing to accept our freedom, then you have to be willing to accept what comes with it. This is about every black man who cannot get justice. You need to represent. You need to be the voice for people who do not have a voice. You're listening to Our Common Ground with Janice Graham. Transforming truth to power, one broadcast at a time.
No matter what, know your values. No matter what, know you matter. The I Declare Show, home of Real Raw Right Now Talk Media. I Declare Show is where we deal with the difficult, real raw, right now. The I Declare Show, real raw right now talk media, I Declare. The I Declare Show, Tuesdays, 9 p.m. I'm Janice Graham, and I Declare It's real, raw, and right now, the I Declare Show, with India Declare. Because our society is only as strong as all its individuals, the United Negro College Fund has helped educate thousands of doctors and researchers, but we need more. Thousands of architects and engineers, but we need more. Thousands of teachers and biologists, but we need more. And when disease, injustice, pollution, poverty, and countless other problems threaten to pull us apart, we had better educate every single person who has the potential to solve our problems. And to educate more people, we need more of your help. Give to the United Negro College Fund. With so much at stake, a mind is a terrible thing to waste. Network Talk Radio. It's the Black Voice Collaborative. Right here on Blog Talk Radio. I'm Janice Graham. This is our phone. It would be my honor if you would join TruthWorks Network. I believe in truth. Transforming truth to power, one broadcast at a time. Our common ground. And we thank you for being with us here tonight at Our Common Ground with Dr. James Taylor. Um, And we are going to be joined uh, very shortly uh, to talk about this gorilla thing. That, That was really, I mean, if nothing you have impresses you about the fabric and the way in which white supremacy works in this country, this should. Zakia Sankara Jabbar is going to be joining us, and she is going to help us deconstruct 
the racist foundations that caused a protest against killing a gorilla that was going to kill a black child. I mean, it's just so outrageous that it's beyond... uh, It's just beyond the pale. It's just beyond the pale. So um, one of the things that we want you to do before we go back into our discussion with Dr. Taylor is we're going to be doing some shifting here at Our Common Ground over the next five months. I'm going to be doing what I call market research about how well we are doing. Uh, one of the things that we need you to do is to give us more input about what you want. Uh, we are looking in February to be going to five nights per week. If the market research indicates that it is worth the investment, and I'm becoming very concerned that um, those of you who are our regular listeners and those of you who are occasional listeners and those of you we don't even know that you're listening, that you don't know that you can listen to us through iTunes, through TuneIn. Um, I have a visitor in my home right now, and she is listening to the program on I on TuneIn on my television. Uh, so... Um, we are looking at whether or not we are meeting a need. If we're not meeting a need, then uh, I can go write or do something different. I can go off on a speaking tour or something like that. So we we want you to help us out, to help us figure out what we, we are doing. Dr. Taylor, uh, thank you once again for being with us. You're an Our Common Ground voice uh, as much as we can, we intend to uh, bring to our audience the best black minds in this country. That's what we have been doing for 33 years. Dr. Amos um, Wilson, uh, Dr. Ben, uh, Dr. Clark. Over the years, we have Haki Mada Booty. Um, we had Shirley Chisholm. We, I mean, we have... We have had any and everybody that black people need to know and need to understand and learn from. So, you know, we want to continue to do this. But before we get started, uh, I want to ask you, I had a clip that I wanted to play with an analysis of Hillary Clinton as a candidate for president. But I'm going to forego that because we're behind time. And maybe next week in the second hour, I will do some more on this, Hillary. But one of the things I want you to talk about, you are an expert in this area. Please explain to me why black people have such a loyalty to a person who seemingly in her record, a demonstrated track record, that she does, one, not understand the issues that face black people, two, does not care, and three, as a candidate, has not articulated any of them in any uh, quality or or depth. Um, And then 
I also want to ask you to talk about how we can use this small opening that Bernie Sanders has created through his candidacy toward getting black people to recognize. You know, let me just put it plain. I'm going to put it plain now. I am mm-hmm. so goddamn sick and tired of coming to every election having to choose the lesser of the evils. Yeah. And okay, and 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 and, and, and I don't like to beat up on people, but we have spent 8 years criticizing Obama, criticizing anybody that Anybody that comes along, nobody's good enough, so we can't rally around, create, um, be innovative enough to have a candidate in place to whom, for whom we can support. What the hell is that about? Yeah, yeah. Um, my my actual dissertation, my actual doctoral dissertation was um, entitled "Black Politics uh, in Transition uh, from Protest." to politics, to political neutrality with a question mark. Uh, and it tracked and mapped out the way in which we had gone from the, the protest phase of the 60s and early 70s. And when Bayard Rustin wrote an article in 65, in commentary, he said that black people needed to move from protest to a phase of politics. And um, what that resulted in is just black people becoming stronger Democrats uh, since 1964. And I mapped that out and tried to articulate a way that the Democratic Party has a very tenuous hold on black people's loyalty, um, except for the presence of a few specific things, like Bill Clinton-type figures uh, and Barack Obama, um, and also black people's uh, reticence toward the Republican uh, Party in general and conservatism. So black people are faced with a politics of limited options. Uh, And it's it's the true dilemma of American politics. It's the problem of white people. It's the problem of both parties. Both parties, since the era of Abraham Lincoln, have been struggling with the problem of having black um, party identifiers and black constituents uh, because there is a almost genetic reticence uh, amongst white um, working class and common white folk uh, against uh, toward black people. Uh, and as a consequence, both parties have played um, hot potato with the black group and the conservative white group. This is, uh, what, this is deeply um, implicated in the polarization of American politics, the red versus blue state phenomena. Um, no phenomena is uh, statistically and empirically demonstrable um, or, or offers a more powerful explanatory variable um, for party identification in America than race. So race beats gender, sexuality, income, education, everything you can imagine. Put it up against race, and race in terms of party partisanship, the strongest indicator of party identification is race um, and its impact on the, on the party system. So the alignments and realignments, the, the, the switch in 32 where the, uh, with the rise of FDR um, and then 30 years later with the rise of LBJ um, and then Ronald Reagan, these all reflect these different periods of alignment and realignments, but they always reflect 
what's going on on the ground about race politics and the, and the relationship of blacks to either of the two major political parties. So unless black people are willing to develop some kind of independent party or neutrality type strategy that you see amongst Latinos um, and some Asian groups, um, we are not going to be able to get anything out of the system. We are too wedded to the Democrats. Um, and even if the Republicans are not an alternative, um, the Democrats just don't offer anything that anyone can point to outside of those high appointments and a few black elected officials, about 10,000 black elected officials across the country, most of them Democrats, but there's not a whole lot um, that black America can point to in terms of the Democratic Party over the past 50 years um, uh, or, or longer um, since they've aligned themselves with the Democratic Party. So this is a problem of the, the dilemma of black Americans being in America as a large racial population, enough, they're actually a nation within a nation. And we are politically, as much as Eugene Robinson and others can talk about racial differentiation, class differentiation, um, the four black Americas and all this nonsense, that all might be true to a journalist and it might be true to, to academics and it might be true here or there, but it's not true in politics. A political scientist like me, I know, we know that black people stick together politically. If they do nothing else, they stick together in, yeah. their, in their partisan behavior. That's the one area of life where you get 90% black solidarity consistently. And there's no other area in life you can really point to outside of membership in the church or the Greek societies where you get that kind of black presence. Um, and, and so where we might have... Um, you know, the elite blacks and the highly educated blacks and the middle class blacks and the working class black and the urbanized, ghettoized black um, stratification across our, our, our population as a people. Um, just like in church on Sunday mornings, you have, you know, some high level black people, but also rank and file working class black people in the same church. You also have that in the party system. That's one area where. Uh, black gays, black straights, black, um, you know, Democrat, I mean, black, you know, Baptist, black Methodist, black, you know, black people in general find consensus in politics. Unfortunately, the consensus is for the Democratic Party. That's our dilemma. We do stick together in that area better than any other area in our life. We do politics better than we do cooperative economics, if you think about it, outside of yes, Atlanta. Yes, we do. Or mm -hmm. outside of Atlanta or, say, D.C. I don't want to make a blanket statement because there are plenty of places where we are cooperating, and we need to encourage that and talk it up positively uh, so that we don't discourage it by, you know, by, by shooting it down. So I do want to, you know, recognize it, that, that it, you know, that it does happen. But I want to – the point I'm making is that we have greater political solidarity um, than we have even economic cooperation. And with that solidarity, unfortunately, we only have found the capacity to locate it first in the Republicans from 1860, um, about 1865, even when we didn't have the right to vote, um, until about 1932, we begin to align with the New Deal and FDR. We don't claim ourselves Republican or Democrats. But we begin to identify in 32 through about 64, that 32-year period is the period of black political neutrality, that we basically are in between both parties. And it's a slow evolution that when FDR finally, I'm sorry, when LBJ finally shows up in JFK, um, 
you can, I mean, it's well documented that King was friends with Richard Nixon, and that King preferred Richard Nixon, and that King, uh, you know, that blacks only went to the Democrats because of a phone call mm-hmm. that JFK mm-hmm. makes to Coretta Scott King, and then, of course, they promote it. But RFK opposed JFK making that phone call, and then once it was done against his will, he decided to take charge of it and demand as attorney general that King be released so that Kennedy could benefit from it. But Kennedy had no good intention toward King. And, and, and that tilted the sway in Ohio for about 100,000 votes. The black vote in Ohio carried a day in the 1960 presidential election for John F. Kennedy. John F. Kennedy. Yes, and then mm-hmm. in 1964, mm-hmm. we do it again. We do it again in 76 for Carter. Um, uh, and and we, got, we have very little to show for that kind of loyalty, especially for Barack Obama. And that's the real tragedy to me, is I think Barack Obama owes black America not because they're black or because he's black. I think Barack Obama owes black America political because favors. They because gave they gave him supported office. Him. They, fo- exactly. they supported him. And, 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 and Sister Graham, what people don't understand is this. Black America outperformed white America, Asian America, Latino America, Native American America, gay America, straight America, any other configuration you can come up with. Young America, this nonsense that young people were enthusiastic for Obama or that Latinos ushered him in, that's all nonsense. The truth of the data is that black Americans two times, for the first time in their history, outperform white people as a percentage of people who were available to vote minus the one million they have on lockdown that actually showed up mm-hmm. to vote. That percentage of people who could that did was the highest ever, and it outperformed white people in America compared to how many people of them that were available and how many actually turned out and voted twice. It was a miracle it happened in 08, but you can understand it, the first-time black candidate. But nobody expected black people to be excited about the re-election of Barack Obama. Everyone, no one detected it except Nate Silver at 538, and he didn't even detect the black dimension of it. He detected a resurgent um, support for Obama, but not the black specificity of it. But the truth is that in 2012, black America outdid itself in 2008 and once again um, outperformed white America and every other possible voting group in, in their turnout. And I think they will be poised again in 2016 uh, to have a major impact uh, on the politics. Mm-hmm. But, but the tragedy is, again, is when, when, when the evangelicals um, helped George Bush get reelected in 2004, George Bush responded with $3 billion in the faith-based initiative. Barack Obama owes black America because they are loyal Democrats and they broke records and they voted for him twice in the high 90s and they voted for him higher than any man in history. He owes them Mm -hmm. because of their democratic loyalty. The very thing that retards our development and holds us back as a people, our our attachment to the Democratic Party, and I am not a Republican. Um, Again, my commitment is to independent black political politics. That's my commitment. It's to some kind of independent black politics at the local level, and if it can rise up to the national level, more power to us. But I think we should be organizing at the local level. But our loyalty to the Democratic Party should have gotten us some kind of a massive historical yield from Barack Obama's administration, well beyond the Affordable Health Care Act well before uh, beyond the Affordable Health Care Act that was black-specific because we elected this man and re-elected this man twice. If it was left to white America, 
Barack Obama would have lost to John McCain in 08, and he would have lost to Mitt Romney in 2012. Thank you. If they Thank had you. Way. You know, we're, we, 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 I have guests that, that's waiting to come in on the conversation on another topic, sure. but one of the things that I want to do is I want to bring you back in a couple thank of weeks, you. and we can no, spend so two much. hours thank talking you. about this because black people need to understand this. I mean, I personally am going to send a letter to Ms., to President Barack Obama as he goes out of office, yeah. uh, another letter, which yeah. reminds him of all of this, which reminds <laughs> him how he abandoned me yeah. as a citizen. Yeah. Yes. And I think yes. everybody ought to be doing, just like we got these petitions up for to get rid of this judge uh, over this rapist boy from Stanford, yes. we need to yes. do the same thing. We are, I mean, we have models. And I talk a lot on this program about how we have to have a run-up in our political uh, yes. mechanisms. Yes. We have to run from the city yes. hall to the state house, yes, exactly. to the congressional That's right. delegation. The That's right. Because Revolution from the, below. Yes. So we're going to do that, and I want everyone in yes. the audience to know that real, 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 we are quickly, going to do I, that. I hope you can, real quickly, I hope you can do a show or, or, or think about it in this context. Hillary Clinton, around the fifth or sixth debate, talked about the, she said this blatantly, you can Google it and, and see the article that covers it. She said, we need a new, new deal for people of color in America. And I haven't heard a word about it. No black Democrat, James Clyburn or, or John or Lewis, all these people she's rolled out. The black preachers, they rolled out. None of them have been able to say to us, That's here's right. why we support Hillary. She's given us promises of a new, new deal. What kind of black leadership do we have? They need to press her. If they're going to ask black people to, be, to, to foolishly vote for the Democrats again, then they need to be able to say to black America, here's the return on your vote. Hillary has promised a new New Deal. Dennis, I, uh, uh, Sister Graham, I hope you can cover that topic sometime soon. I, Hillary's I, I, I uh, promise of a new, I new have, Deal. I have been asking, here is a, the pres, presumed nominee yes. who – whose platform, and I am a person who reads everything that's not nailed down and shuttered yeah. out, and I have no idea what this woman's platform is. Yeah. But we're going to do this in a couple answer, of weeks. It's a, racist, it's a racist platform, and we can talk about that next time. But Hillary Clinton's whole agenda is so deep. The whole, I'm reading this book about, again, Nixon. It, it ends at Bill Clinton, and it says that Bill Clinton became not a new Democrat, but a newt, as a Newt Gingrich Democrat. He became so far right that Manning Marable said he was the most conservative Democrat since Woodrow Wilson. Since Woodrow Wilson. So Bill Clinton and Hillary Clinton don't deserve a single black vote, but the problem is we don't have any alternative uh, because our black leadership has not organize an independent fulcrum at the national level or at the ground level that we have to. Thank you so much for having me. Well, no, I don't want you to leave. Don't oh, go. Okay. okay. Uh, I want you to in part of this discussion because I think it lays okay. the groundwork, the, uh, a, a way of thinking about right. the things that are going on. Um, right. <clears throat> Zakia Sankara Jabbar, I'm going to try to find you on this board. Let me see. I think you have your hand up. Nine three seven. 
Are you 937? Yes, I'm here. Hey, sister, thank you for joining us. You're with Dr. James Taylor, and we have had a robust, and I'm telling you, I could talk talk for two more hours uh, tonight. Uh, But I, I, I appreciate your joining us to talk about the gorilla story. It was very troubling. Uh, Dr. Taylor, you know about the gorilla, right? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's amazing. Okay. So, uh, Sister Zakira, uh, uh, tell us, give us a very brief, and I apologize for being so late bringing you in, but give us a very brief outline of what happened here. So, um, that happened at the Cincinnati Zoo. I obviously um, live in Dayton. That's about 45 minutes away. And we initially did not know that the family was black. Um, it was actually, I want to say, maybe a day or two before um, the very first, uh, what I call a hit piece, was written um, by the Daily Mail. I forget the journalist's name. Um, that, you know, published the uh, criminal history of the father and just really laid into the family um, behind this gorilla's death. And for me, it was really triggering. I mean, you know, a lot of my work is, you know, working and organizing with parents, specifically uh, black parents uh, in particular, who are often, you know, judged, criminalized, all of those things in the school system. And I I, um, was not shocked at all once I found out, you know, that this family was indeed black and the pictures and the, criminal histories and all those things were were published and, and, and the family actually had to relocate briefly because of the media and paparazzi and, and threats. Literally people were threatening to kill them with this gorilla. And so that is I well, I think what I wanted to articulate to your listeners tonight, that is on full display what parents go through, black parents in particular, go through every single day in the school system, literally. Right. And, and, you know, we hear all these horror stories about disengaged parents, about how parents aren't, you know, wanting to be involved in child's education. You know, these people are speaking for us. And because most of the time, you know, these are parents who are working class. Some of us are just abject poor. There is no work, right? Um, You know, I live in Dayton, an old, you know, industrial town. You know, General Motors left years ago, Um, you know, and so now we're mainly a service economy. And so uh, there's a lot of poverty, abject poverty, um, you know, where we live. The schools are suffering. Mm -hmm. And so... And so these families, a lot of times, you know, this this is the vitriol, literally, that we live with every day. And so that fight is even there, even with, and I, I, I've been listening to you all for a while, and uh, Dr. Taylor, you know, hit, hit, hit the nail on the head. I mean, this whole class structure, and I don't know if you've been following, um, you know, Miss Janice, the conversations that me and Miss um, Ruby, our elder Miss Ruby, have been having, but... She's a, a, a supporter, of course, of Hillary, and I've just been pushing her, you know, on this whole class dynamic. I'm like, you know, I'm – Wait a minute. Can I say something? Ruby yes, and please. I usually talk twice or three times a week. Uh, I haven't talked to Ruby for weeks. I, 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 I'm not understanding where she's coming from. I'm, 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 I'm confused about it. So I hear you. 
Yeah. And I won't yeah, get into the discussion with her because I love her too much. Oh mm-hmm. yeah, no, absolutely, absolutely, and and I have too much respect for her as an elder, and so I just said respectfully, we're not going to talk about this anymore. But I mean, that that that's it, you know. There and 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 I talk about you know sort of the middle class blacks, right, or the 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 the, the blacks who are you know not down, you know, in the ghetto with us, so to speak. Um, these are a lot of times our administrators in the schools, right? And we don't have a whole lot of language on how to articulate how black principals and some black administrators treat, you know, our parents, you know, our working class and poor parents almost just as bad. You know, this is what we live with. And so you have a lot of depression in the community. I mean, I literally felt so bad for that parent. I wanted to just run to her rescue because I'm like, wow, you know, I'm, I, I, I can, I can just feel, you know, the kind of vitriol, you know, that she was getting um, because I, I work with it every single day. Um, parents mm-hmm. are afraid a lot of times to speak up for themselves, and I think that I just wish we would would have more conversations about the school to prison pipeline in the context of what parents are actually going through as well. Right. Right. Mhm. Mhm. Well, one of the things that it 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 is clear to me that uh social media especially has given a way to a platform for the kind oh, of yeah. ignorance and the vitriol uh, the racist vitriol that has always existed. Sean King uh posted on Facebook <coughs> a two-year history of children being killed or mauled as a result of an incident or an ac- an accident at zoos across the country. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and one of the things that, one of the incidents that, that really struck me was where a woman was actually dangling her child over the rail yeah. Uh, yeah. with some... Uh, Singalese tigers and dropped the child and the child was mauled to death. And um, but I think one of the, you know I, I think that one of the things when you begin to see the nexus between what happened with these parents at the zoo and what mm-hmm. happens with parents when they try to engage, because there's a lot of propaganda that goes around about black parents don't get involved oh, in school, yeah. they don't go to the PTA oh, meetings. Yeah. And see, my point of view, and the last time you were here, I think I said this, my point of view is the goddamn PTA meeting ought to be on the Facebook or on Twitter or whatever, yeah. and everybody mm-hmm. would come. Mm-hmm. So schools have to catch up with, with the with the technology, mm-hmm. and the other is that our acceptance as a people about how we are treated. Yeah, I, um. I think it comes to a point where we have to protect and defend our humanity. Yes, yes, and and, and I'm and, struggling and, with. Yeah, I just I just wanted to say I, I struggle with that in our community, and one of the things that we've had to develop just really recently is a healing piece to our work. There is so much trauma. When I say, 
I, I, it's really just hard to articulate in words. There is just so much trauma. Sometimes in our gatherings, I hate to call them meetings because they truly are, you know, healing spaces. When we come together um, once or twice a month, usually uh, once a month, just because of our capacity, sometimes parents just really just walk in. And before they can really utter a word, tears just begin to flow. And it's almost like, wow. I mean, I've learned so much over the last several years doing this work, and and it energizes me and depresses me all at the same time. It's because I I, I try not to become angry and bitter and 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 push back on the people who are ignoring who. who who participate in the pain that we're inflicting on uh, other people in the community, and mainly those are, you know, um, you know, the absent churches. I mean, I'm just going to be honest with you in this community. Uh, the churches the ab- are totally, yeah, they're absent. The absent. They're totally absent. I mean, the yeah. Greek organizations, all those organizations that Dr. Taylor was naming earlier, they're not in the struggle. They're not fighting. In fact, they're blaming us for our own problems. I mean, they, yes. they're, it's, and I don't know whether it's just Dayton or maybe this part of the country, but black people are extremely conservative around here. I mean, it, well, it is it is all about bootstrapping. It really is. Well, you know, I noticed that no one noted in my universe uh, over the last 24 hours that Bill Clinton actually got up in a – in a in a memorial service for Muhammad Ali and said that the the best part of his life was the the part where he was sick. Oh, I did hear somebody note that. I did. Okay. Yeah. I didn't okay. watch it. I, I did but, I actually didn't even watch it, but I heard somebody did note it. But but the thing is that those are the kinds of things that we have become either unconscious in our response. Mm-hmm. Or mm-hmm. we have become so resilient to the extent that we have been, become numb, but not recognizing yeah. that as that there's so many of our people who are suffering from PTSD. Yes, big time. Big I mean, time. I just, I, I, I just can't. I mean, I've been doing what I'm doing tonight for 33 years. This is my thirty-three-third mm. year of our common ground, mm-hmm. and one of the things that I find is I, if I absorb everything that I learn on this show every mm-hmm. week, or when I was doing it five days a week, and not process it, and not help people to help me through it, people like Ruby Sales and people like Doctor uh, Susan, Reverend Susan Smith. And people like my friend Carmen Del Rosario and Pascal Robert. I mean, I am on the phone so much just trying to cleanse myself so that I don't become sick from this. Yeah. And and that's, and my, and that's what we've had to deal with because... Yes. You know, that's a part of the not showing up that I try to articulate to these administrators. A part of the not showing up is that, you know, they can't. There's no energy there. You're right, Uh the PTSD, the trauma, that's a part of it, but that's not the frame. The frame is always a 
paternalistic pathologizing, you know, they just don't want to, you know, people don't want to do this and all these other kind of, you know, really negative uh, frames that we have Mm -hmm. when it comes to talking about black parents, again, in particular. And so, you know, I try to um, really bring in this whole emotional wellness piece to it. Um, um, Been having conversations with the Community Healing Network um, and Association of Black Psychologists, um, Dr. Cheryl Grills, who is amazing, um, met her about a year ago at a conference, a Robert Wood Johnson uh, conference, and um, she's a part of that that community healing network. And there's something called emotional emancipation circles I had an opportunity to participate in and um, bringing that back here to the community um, here in Dayton. And, and, and it seems to be working so far. I mean, we yeah. have to yeah. have some kind of outlet, right, um, to be able to to, to heal in, in community with each other and also be able to at least articulate and talk about our pain because you're right, we, we're, we're holding it in and it's eating us up mm-hmm. and it's, it's causing other issues as well. I, I mentioned earlier that my 14-year-old grandson, who's just so brilliant, uh, he wrote a paper about my show with Dr. Tommy Curry last week. But um, he was a valedictorian of his junior high school uh, graduating class. Um, Mm -hmm. And he, in his speech today, he talked about the debt, the debt Mm -hmm. of people who nurture, the the debt of people who care about excellence and, and help, and helped him define the difference between getting the getting the job done and excellence in getting the job done, and recognizing how, um, <clears throat> his growth as a critical thinker. And he was saying all this stuff in his speech. <clears throat> Excuse me. So mm-hmm. at the luncheon at his graduation luncheon this afternoon, I had a chance to spend some real quality time with him. And I and I was saying to him one of the things that you have to understand that I want you to know that you gave them as much as you got because he was talking about what the school and the teachers and the staff blah blah blah. So I think that one of the things that we have to understand in our community that. Our engagement is valuable to is so valuable to the process because it's so much more innovative. It's so much more uh, electric than what they got. Mm-hmm. And and when yes, they discourage discourage our parents, I mean, black parents. Right. You know, one of the reasons that you all ever noticed that all the white people want to hang out with all the black people because we know more than they do. Because mm-hmm. we have to know more than they do. We Amen. understand and extrapolate stuff that's happening around us. And when we talk about it, it's new to them. They just, you know, just, you know, tiptoe to the tulips because they can. And we can't. So that's, that's a, right. a value. That's a, that's a real value. And we have to learn to 
honor that value and respect that value. And that's what I was trying to tell my grandson today, that, hey, you know, when they see you walk out of here uh, having scored the 99 percentile in standardized tests and that you got a perfect score in both science and math on the standardized tests, you're doing them a favor. Right. So while you do have a debt, you have a debt to me, you have a debt to your parents, you have a debt to people who have loved you, and yes, you do have to pay back that debt and you have to pay it forward, but you have to also think about, know about the things that you have done for us. Right, right. Because otherwise, you know, if we don't do that, then then our children, our parents can't understand their worth. Our citizens can't understand their worth when they become engaged and fight to help our community understand the difference between a Bernie Sanders, a Jill Stein, a Hillary Clinton. Uh, When the black community broke out and said, Bill Clinton, your administration wasn't crap. It was crap. It created more problems than it solved. Nobody was talking about that. Right. It wasn't this Bernie Sanders people that brought it up. It was black you know, people. You, you know, another thing that I think is really interesting, um, and, and, I, and, and, and it bothers me because – we're talking about voting and we're talking about black people. The vast majority of people in America, period, about half, I want to say, and Dr. You know Taylor can correct me if he has the correct numbers, don't vote at all. But when it comes mm-hmm. to, I mean, but the apathy is created. You mentioned Dr. Amos Wilson earlier. That That's one of my favorite teachers. I literally. I know he I'm is. Either reading, I know he is. Yeah, he, that's one of my I mean, I mean, I'm, my husband will tell you. We are listening to a lecture of his at least two or three times a week, or yeah. I'm picking up a book and I'm reading something out of it of his. I mean, he's one of my favorite teachers, but the apathy is created. That's something that I learned from him, and and mm-hmm. and the poor the people who are at the at the very bottom to me they're the smartest because they realize in this two party system right. They realize that no matter who they vote for, with the exception of maybe some local elections, no matter really who they vote for, ain't nothing going to change for them. Nothing. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. and I and I and I have lived that, you know, because I'm like, okay, well, I keep voting for Democrats, keep voting for Democrats, and then they, as soon as they're elected, they totally ignore us. And I started off as a union person. I started off as a diehard Democrat, and then I was just like, well, wait a minute, this ain't working for me. Yeah, you know. yeah, but let's let's take this back now to the to the parents who could have lost their child to this gorilla. Who the hell opposes saving a thinking that a gorilla is gonna help a child protect a child in the gorilla house? That's not gonna happen. But one of the things that I notice, and I don't know if you, Doctor Taylor, or if you, Zakia, uh, notice this. When it first happened, I heard a black community pause before 
people really responded. They were saying, okay, did the mother really do something that she didn't? It, it, we were going to the to the, the to to the to the to the um, fountain of propaganda used against us. The media immediately demonized this mother. Uh, was she holding and the child's mother. hand? Nobody, mm-hmm. you know, it's like the rapist. Nobody's asking the question, even though he's going to be on the sex offender uh, registry. He won't be able to go to a park, pick up his kids from school, none of that stuff. But nobody was asking the Cincinnati Zoo, what were you thinking not to have a barrier where no nothing could get through. But I heard the community well, pause and 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 listen to the propaganda at first, and then people started screwing their heads on right. Uh, but you're absolutely right. There is a relationship in all of this. It's a relationship in what Doctor Doctor. Taylor was talking about in terms of how we are and I was and and I was talking about this maybe about 2 months ago how we vote as a block and why that happens and it's the relationship between that between the response of uh, uh, and the and the protests and the racist treatment of these parents in the gorilla case. And it's also a relationship that that moves toward the whole idea of of what I like to talk about in terms of defending our honoring and, and defending because we honor it our own humanity as a people. So I really thank you for bring for for be being willing to come on and 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 talk about these things. Dr. Taylor and I have to uh organize um maybe a series. Dr. Taylor, do you hear what I said? A series. <laughs> and and also, you know, I'm always innovate, uh, innovating. Um as my father used to say, girl, you've got an idea a minute. <laughs> okay, so here's what I'm thinking about this healing and trauma stuff. And I've done this before. I was working with uh, Blueprint for Women in New York. And I'm willing to do it again if you're willing to do something. See, I th- I know what the power of radio is. I know yeah. the power of this of this radio. I have changed things, important things in communities when I was doing community mm-hmm. radio. So, awesome. I mean, you know, I just, so if you and your comrades can get together on the issue of parents and children and education, I got two hours for you. All right. I got two hours for you. Um, we do need healing. We need healing in, a, in in more because you know it, it's almost like we've got many people in our community who have been in such denial, who have been so abandoned and betrayed by black misleadership, 
and they're starting to yeah. wake up, and in this awakening, they feel the pain, and the pain in many ways paralyzes them. All you have to do is look at the pattern in which um, most clinicians would address PTSD. We are hypervigilant. We have anxiety levels that are so high. That's why we have so much high blood pressure and diabetes and overeating and obesity and 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 and, and we have no sanctuary in the traditional spiritual places that we have always had. Nobody trusts the black church anymore, except for those who benefited from it. Exactly. So, you know, I mean, I'm going to be talking to Dr. Taylor in a few minutes um, about doing a one-month series teaching. You see, the thing is people don't understand how the political system works. And if you understood how the political system works, perhaps you could construct a political empowerment mechanism so that it works against the established system that oppresses us. So Dr. Taylor can come in and we can have uh, one night a week where he's teaching political science. That would be great. Be- because I think people think that um, – some of these people, John Lewis, I think John Lewis needs to go. Thank you for your service. I think a lot of these people need to go. I was yeah. listening to Maxine Waters. I went to Maine, um, and I was driving back. It was a, like a four-and-a-half-hour drive, and I was listening to Maxine Waters in uh, an interview, and I was deeply, deeply disturbed by her support of Hillary Clinton And I was deeply uh, uh, disturbed by the way in which she articulates uh, political needs or analyzes political issues. Time for her to go. I don't care what people say. So, Zakia, thank you so very much. I'm going to put you on mute so that you can listen to the rest of the show because I am going to... Um, say goodbye to everyone. And this clip that um, this clip did I lose Dr. Taylor? I don't think so. This clip that I okay, you're here. Okay. Um, This clip that Uh, I have on Hillary Clinton, which talks about her relationship to the Bush administration, which talks about the lead-up to Syria and Libya. Because if you don't believe that she is a hawk, if you don't believe that she is, her entire political integrity is gutted by corporations, then I think we need to hear that. But, Dr. Taylor, I would love to do a course here at Our Common Ground on Political Science. I'll be more than glad to. 
I'd be more than glad. We can call it classes in session. <laughs> yes. Okay. Okay. I will send. Believe me, I will send you the outline on Monday night. No, I'd be glad to. Uh, and, it would be no and, problem because I mean, to me, that's what that's what's most important. You know, like you said earlier, if if what we know, you know, um, doesn't benefit the uplift of black people, that's one of the things that Ronald Walters, who's a great political scientist yes. at Howard University for many years, said. He would always say, whatever you brought to him is, what does that have to do with the liberation of black people? And if it doesn't have anything to do with the liberation of black people, it doesn't make the run. You know, it's really interesting that you say that because in my first two or three years, and you know I chaired the campaign for A New Tomorrow, and Ron Walters was part, was an okay. architect of that okay. campaign. Um, and he and Ron Daniels in the first two or three years, yeah. along with Bob Law, um, were um, my radio mentors every day right. or every week. Um, that was during the time when calls were long distance were expensive. Uh, I would defer to them about strategies yeah. about what I do about this radio program. Well, if Ronald Walters had had his way, we would have had an independent black political party in 1984 with Jesse Jackson's campaign, but Jesse just would not uh, yep. follow his, his, yep. his direction. Ron Walters is, to me, uh, the standard of political scientists in America and the epitome of black political scientists and his excellence being far you know, removed from the academic world, Ron Walters was on the front lines of trying to impact, you know, policy and um, the party system, trying to find out, figure out ways to empower black people. And he was, he actually led um, a, a sit-in even before the famous sit-in in Greensboro, North Carolina. He led one, I believe. In his hometown. In, that's right. That's right. That's right. That's right. Uh, that's when right. I did a tribute to him, because he used to be a part, I had like five or six people who would come on the show every week, uh, and okay. he was one of them. So yeah. I'm really looking forward to this, and I hope our audience tonight will support us in doing this and get some of your your students and uh, your yeah, and 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 we'll talk about it. Thank you so very much for joining us again. I yeah. so much appreciated uh, our our conversation tonight. Yeah. Yes, and absolutely. I hope, and I'm sure that our audience did. Thank you so much, and have a thank good you. Sunday. Thank and you. thank you for being with us tonight at Our Common Ground. Uh, again, a big thanks to Alpha for holding down the fort last week. And we'll see you next week when we're going to be meeting with Chris Everett, the friend, the the filmmaker of Wilmington on Fire about the. 1857 massacre of a black community in um, in Wilmington, North Carolina. We won't have time for that tape, but I'll pay it next week. Hillary Clinton, I got your number. Good night, everyone. Have a good Sunday and a good week.
so much for joining us here at Our Common Ground tonight. We'll see you right here at 10 p.m. on Our Common Ground next Saturday. I'm Janice Grant, and I'll be listening for you in the Purple Rain.